0: Our text this morning is uh, Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. Luke 23 and verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Lord Jesus hung on a tree executed by a corrupt judicial system, at the behest of a corrupt religious system. And of all who ever walked the face of the earth, he was the only one who was holy and entirely innocent. And Luke is at pains to emphasize the innocence of Jesus. He quotes Pilate in verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. He quotes Pilate again in verse 14. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. He mentions that Herod also found Jesus innocent in verse 15. Neither did Herod. Pilate found him innocent, as did Herod. And then Pilate a third time in verse 22. Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. Verse 22. And as we read, even the thief on the cross says, This man has done nothing wrong. And yet he would die the just in the hands of the unjust. We who are his people ought not to expect to be treated any better in this fallen world. If they treated him thus, we can expect to be treated unjustly as well. The Romans would bring Jesus to the place that they in Latin called Calvaria. We would say Calvary. It's the place that the Jews called Golgotha, the place of a skull. And there they would kill him. From nine o'clock till noon on That Friday, the people around the cross would hear Jesus say a word about forgiveness, a word about paradise, a word about family. And then during the darkness, the hours from noon till three, they would hear him speak about being forsaken. They'd hear a word about thirst and and then something about something being finished, And then they'd hear him pray to the Father. We're going to think about the first of those words from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Extraordinarily, after they had wrongly arrested him and falsely accused him and cruelly mocked him and viciously abused him and wickedly tried him, and unjustly condemned him. And after they had finally crucified him, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it is extraordinary grace, it's extraordinary love, and it's forgiveness that this Jesus extends to people like us, people like them, sinners like all. And I want to speak to you first of all then about the wonder of God's forgiveness, the wonder of God's forgiveness. And the first thing we can say is that he forgives sin, I mean, even this sin, the father, Jesus assumes, the father can forgive even those who killed his son, even those who killed the only begotten of the father, the unique son. We're sons and daughters, thank God. But he's the unique son. He's the one and only son. He's the son of his love. And Jesus knows that the Father is willing to forgive even them of even this. The word forgive means to blot out the transgression completely. And he says, Father, forgive them. It means to remove the terrible legal consequences of their actions. Father, forgive them even of this. Who was Jesus praying for? Well, he's praying for the people around the cross, the people who were perpetrating the crime, the people who were persecuting Him, the people who were killing him. And He's praying that they might be forgiven praying that they might be forgiven their sins. And surely not only this sin, but others. Listen to Bishop Ryle. Great evangelical Anglican bishop who has been so wonderfully used to God. He writes, The fruits of this wonderful prayer will never be fully seen until the day when the books are opened and the secrets of all hearts are revealed. We have probably not the least idea of how many conversions to God at Jerusalem which took place during the first six months after the crucifixion were directly a reply uh, to this marvelous prayer. Perhaps this prayer was the first step towards the penitent thief's repentance. Perhaps it was one means of affecting the centurion who declared our Lord a righteous man and the people who smote their breasts and returned. Perhaps the 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost. Foremost, it may be at one time among the Lord's murderers. owed their conversion to this very prayer. The day will declare it. There is nothing secret that shall not be revealed. This only we may say, that the Father hears the Son always. And we may be sure that this prayer was heard. The Lord prayed for these people. He prayed for those around the cross. He prayed for those who nailed his Hands and feet uh, to the cross. He prayed for those who were spitting upon him. He prayed for those who hammered the crown of thorns into his head. He prayed for these people. And the Father answered, and there were many saved. And we read on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 people saved. We read in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, that after that, there were 4,000 people saved. 5,000 rather. And then we read in Acts 6, verse 7, that a great many of the priests, this corrupt religious establishment, we read that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God answered the prayer. And they came to faith. And they repented of sin. And they believed in the Lord Jesus and they were forgiven as the, the Lord Jesus prayed. And perhaps this prayer, surely this prayer, encompasses us as well. Because we put him on the cross as well. We nailed him to the tree. Our sin brought him into the world and our sin brought him to the cross. You may remember Rembrandt has a, has a, a wonderful painting of the crucifixion. And if you look carefully in the painting, you'll see somebody there who doesn't seem to fit. I think he has a a, sort of a French beret. That's Rembrandt, isn't it? And he paints himself there because he's a believer. And he paints himself there because he knows, "I, I nailed him to the cross. It's my sin. It's my sin. And Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. And corrupt sinners like us are forgiven. The wonder of God's forgiveness. He forgives sin. Even sin like this. Even sin like yours. And he forgives all sin. When someone comes to Christ, when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus, all your sin is forgiven. Because what's happening on the cross is what was predicted in the Old Testament It's what was pictured on the Day of Atonement. And what happened on the Day of Atonement? Well, we read about that in Leviticus chapter 16. And what we're told there is that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, Jesus, is the great high priest. All the high priests of the Old Testament just pictured him, foreshadowed him. And the high priest would place his hands on a sacrificial goat... And Leviticus 16, 21 says, he will confess then. On the live goat, he will confess all the iniquities of the children of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. See, those those three words, those key words, iniquities, transgressions, sins. There are other words as well in the Old Testament and the Scriptures that are used to describe what's wrong with us, to describe and elaborate on the nature of our sin. But the emphasis there is, confess on the head of the goat all their transgressions, all their sins, all their iniquities. And that's what's happening on the cross. Jesus is bearing all our sins. All the sins of those who at God's time will repent and believe and trust the Lord Jesus And that's why all of their sins can be forgiven, because he bore all their transgressions. And that's why we can sing, My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from you. And if you're a Christian today, that's exactly your legal standing before God. God, when he looks at you, does not see your sin. He doesn't see your iniquity. He doesn't see your transgression. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from you. Father, forgive them. And He forgives all our sins. My sin, we sing. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross And I bear it no more. God no longer sees it. I no longer bear it. I am forgiven of all my sins. He forgives our sin. He forgives all our sin. And He forgives once and for all. He forgives our sins once and for all. Now certainly in terms of our personal relationship to our Father, we need to go back to Him repeatedly to clear things up. Just the way a child... Repeatedly sins against a parent, and he, when they sin, it doesn't change their legal status. They're still children, but every now and then they need to go and say, Well, I'm sorry about this, and I'm sorry about that. And so it is with our Father. But legally, in terms of our judicial standing before God, we're forgiven of all of our sins, we're cleansed from everything, and we're cleansed once and for all. So, this horrendous scene. This Golgotha need never be and will never be and can never be repeated. And so when the Catholics tell us that, that this scene and this sacrifice is repeated in the sacred confines of the Catholic Church when the Mass is celebrated, well, that's just heresy. That's not a sacred and mysterious event. It's just made up. It contradicts scripture. It's not true. It's heretical. This is a once for all sacrifice. The Bible's very clear about that. Hebrews 9:38. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. So when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. No more sacrifice need be made. No more sacrifice could be made. And you're forgiven once and for all. Hebrews 8.12 says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. You've been forgiven once and for all. It's astonishing, this forgiveness of God, and then He forgives graciously. God forgives graciously. Jesus prays, "Father, forgive them." And uh, then we read in uh, Colossians chapter three and verse uh, thirteen uh, these words: Colossians three and thirteen, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another. Uh, Forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now the word that Paul uses for forgive is a word slightly different than the word that Jesus uses. The word that Paul uses emphasizes uh, the graciousness of forgiveness. When Jesus prays forgive them, he's talking about taking that sin away, removing it from us, as far as the east is from the west, that kind of thing. When Paul says forgive, he uses a word that emphasizes that, well, when God forgives us, it's purely grace. It's nothing earned. It's nothing merited. It's entirely of His free grace. And Paul is saying now, when you forgive, you're to forgive in the same way. Forgive freely. Forgive graciously. We tend not to want to do that. We tend, like that Shakespearean character, to, to want our pound of flesh. We want to forgive in our own way, in a way where you know, we get what we want. Sometimes we're not as eager to forgive as we ought to be. We want them to well, we want them to, to suffer a little bit, because, you know, they did something really bad. They did something really hurtful, and they really shattered me so. If I'm going to forgive them I, want to see them, I want to see them suffer a little bit. And I haven't suffered quite enough yet. I'd like to see them suffer a little more. I want to see them do a little penance. The only time I'm Catholic is when I want people to do a little penance before I forgive them. We want them to earn forgiveness. But we didn't. We, we didn't earn forgiveness. We couldn't earn forgiveness, no, God graciously forgave us. And so, yes, he forgives sin, and he forgives all sin, and he forgives once and for all, and he forgives graciously. This is what the Lord has prayed. That's why it's such a marvelous prayer. That's why God's forgiveness is such a wonderful thing. And what I've done is just give you a little sketch I've just started to talk about how wonderful this forgiveness is. And, you know, the extraordinary thing is, or one of the extraordinary things is, that it comes to you just by faith. You're saved by grace through faith. When Peter preaches this gospel on Pentecost, he says, well, just believe in the Lord Jesus. Repent of sin, you who killed him. Repent of sin and trust the Lord Jesus and you'll be forgiven. And they're pronounced forgiven. There's 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost. And they're saved. They're forgiven of all their sins, even this. And what did they do? Well, they believed. They just trusted Christ. This promise is to all who believe. That's astounding. No wonder... Cooper writes, The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Ere since by faith I saw the stream from the fountain filled with blood, that fountain promised in the scriptures. And that promise fulfilled, that Calvary, a fountain filled, not with water, but with the blood of Jesus. And I was cleansed of all my sin, as I believed. So it's all by faith. So yes, the wonder of God's forgiveness, it's just astounding. It's your experience if you're a Christian today. Secondly, the cost of God's forgiveness. The cost... Maybe you remember 2 Samuel 24, 24, where David wants to buy the field of Aruana. And uh, he wants to buy it so that he can build an altar to the Lord. And Aruana wants to give it to him. Just give it to him free. And David says, no, I will buy it from you for a price. For I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost nothing. Well, God offers you forgiveness. And all the cost of that. It's free for you. He gives it to you. He offers it to you free of charge. But it cost him. It cost the father his own son. That's what it cost. It cost the father his own son. In verse 25 we're told that Pilate released Barabbas, but he delivered Jesus over to them all. Now, that word delivered is the same word that is used by Paul in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And so, yes, the Pilate delivered them up. But really, what was happening on the cross is that the Father delivered Jesus up. It was the Father at work. Not to deny the acts of wicked men and not to deny by any means the responsibility of wicked men. But understand that over and above everything it was the Father working and acting. And the Father sends His Son into the jaws of death. And the Father sends His Son into the Clutches of the devil and into the hands of wicked men. And the Father, Isaiah tells us, lays on him the iniquity of us all. This is what it cost the Father to do this to his only begotten Son, his one and only, his unique, his beloved Son, with whom he had shared love and fellowship and joy and delight through all eternity. And this is what he does. He delivers his son up. The Father pours on Christ the wrath that we deserved. Octavius Winslow writes, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Cost the Father his own son. And then it cost the son his own blood. It cost the son his own blood. Cori Tenboom writes, and she writes reflecting upon their experience she and her sister in the Nazi concentration camp. And she reflects upon Jesus on the cross, and she reflects upon that whilst they were standing each day naked being inspected by leering and wicked men each day during this camp. And this is what she writes. She said, these thoughts came to me. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known. I had not thought. The paintings, the carved crucifixes showed at least a scrap of cloth But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned towards Betsy, her sister. I leaned towards Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy. They took his clothes too. It's humiliation. He died naked on a cross. This cost the Father, and it cost the Son, it cost him his own blood. There was pain. This was the cost for the Son. There was pain. One writer says the cosmic trauma had begun. Now Jesus is is nailed to the cross. It is then lifted up. It falls heavily into the hole that is dug and thuds in and must have been extraordinarily excruciating. The cosmic trauma had begun. There never had been such pain as physical and spiritual evil now came against Jesus in terrible conjunction. Body and soul recoiled. The initial shock of crucifixion had rendered him paralyzed, and quivering, physical disbelief screamed from severed nerves, and even greater spiritual horror closed in. he would soon become sin it cost him his own blood, there was humiliation, and there was pain, and there was hell matthew twenty seven forty six Another cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, hell is separation from God. Hell is the father turning his face away from the condemned. And hell is what Jesus endured so that you might be forgiven. That's what it cost him. It cost the father his own son. And it cost the son his own blood. Why have you forsaken me? Why indeed? So that you and I might not be forgiven. That's why. He's forsaken so that we might not be forsaken. He endures this so that we would not. And that's the explanation. That's the reason. That's the cost of our forgiveness. And the cost, you see, shows the awfulness of our sin. The cost shows the awfulness of our sin. If the father must give up his son and the son must shed his blood, it shows the awfulness of our sin. John Charles Ryle says, terribly black must be that guilt for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. Heavy must be that weight of human sin which made Jesus groan and sweat drops of blood and agony at Gethsemane and cry on Calvary, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nothing, I am convinced, will astonish us so much when we awake in the resurrection day as the view we shall have of sin and the retrospect we shall take of our own countless shortcomings and defects, never till the hour when Christ comes a second time shall we fully realize the sinfulness of sin. Well might George Whitfield say, "The anthem of heaven will be, "What hath God wrought? The extraordinary wickedness of our sin." So the cost shows us the awfulness of our sin. And the cost shows us the wonder of his grace. If he would do this so that you might not endure this. How gracious is he? What love does he have towards us? John 17, 23. I in them, says Jesus, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me love them even as you have loved me. Jesus is saying, I want the world to know that that he loves you as much as he loves me. That explains, why hast thou forsaken me? It's because he loves us as much as he loves his son. That can't be, even as I say it to you right now, I think, whoa, be careful, that doesn't sound right. But I'm quoting scripture. Scripture. That love, you see, that grace explains the inexplicable. It explains why the Father delivers up the Son for the children. He loves you. That's the cost. Now lastly, thirdly, the implications of God's forgiveness. The implications... Let me give you some words that encapsulate some impl- implications. First word is saved. If you're not a Christian, you need to listen very carefully to this. Because this is for you. Saved. See, not everyone on that day was saved. As far as we know, Pilate wasn't saved. There were others who were not saved. In fact, Paul says in Romans 11 that, that a blindness in part has happened to Israel. But those who believed, they were saved. Those who trusted Christ were saved. In Matthew 27, we read that the centurion would believe. We also read in Acts that the priests became obedient to the faith. So these people believed and God forgave them. So the question now is what about you? And have you believed? Maybe there was something enticing and something that, that drew you when you listened to this whole matter of forgiveness. Maybe you've been, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, you've been laboring, you've been carrying the weight of your sin for a long time now. It's been a little while where you've become really conscious of your sin, really aware of it, and it's been weighing you down. And the idea of actually being forgiven is now becoming not just attractive, but necessary. So what do you do then to be forgiven? Well, the Bible is very clear. You go right to Jesus and ask him to forgive you. You don't have to go to a church. You don't have to go to a priest. You go to Jesus. He's your high priest. And you ask him to forgive you. That's what you do. You go right to the Lord Jesus. And you pray that he will forgive you of your sins on the basis of what he's done. And the Bible says when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. It's as simple as that. Earlier in the passage in verse verse 30, you read about people fleeing and people crying out for mountains to cover them. And Revelation tells us that at the end, that's what it's going to be. People who are not believers, people who've never trusted Christ, people whose sins are not forgiven, they're going to try to flee from the wrath of the Lamb. And the same Jesus who now is saying, Father, forgive them, on that day, he will condemn those who have never believed and he will pour his wrath out upon them and if that's you it'll be a dreadful day it'll be the it'll be the beginning of a dreadful eternity and so today you need to go to Jesus for forgiveness otherwise one day you'll be fleeing from Jesus and be unable to do so but you can be saved you can be saved today you can you can, before you get up out of the pew, out of the pew, before you get up out of these chairs, you can be forgiven of all your sins. Incredible. Second word is sovereign, sovereign. Well, the Lord Jesus here was, forgi- was fulfilling prophecy, you see. Isaiah 53, 12 says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. He was fulfilling scripture. He was fulfilling prophecy. And it all reminds us that though we see him hanging on a cross, he's the sovereign. He's bringing his will to pass. He's in control of everything. He he strides like a colossus through this whole passion narrative. Even though he seems to our eyes so weak, He's in complete control, and he's doing the Father's will. He's accomplishing salvation. He's defeating the devil. He's saving a people. What a savior we have. Absolutely sovereign. That's the second word. Third word is selfless. What an example for us, not in terms of saving. We can't do that, but we can follow the example he sets us of selflessness Because don't you think it's extraordinary that here, in the midst of the most torturous experience imaginable, and elements of this torture are unimaginable for us because the worst elements of his torture was wrath-bearing, and that's something we can't understand. But in the midst of all of this, he thinks about other people. That's amazing. Further on, he'll think about his mother. He'll say, John, look after my mother. but he thinks about others. From time to time, I've witnessed extraordinarily Christ-like examples of selflessness. Probably you have as well. We don't want to just witness things like that. We want to be like that. We want to be selfless as our Lord Jesus is. Pray for grace to be selfless, the way the Lord was. Thirdly, fourthly rather, siblings. Siblings. Forgiving brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgiving brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be forgiving when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ who sin against us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, when I'm at the foot of the cross, that's where we are today, aren't we? We're trying to prepare our hearts for the table by by standing at the foot of the cross. And he said, when I stand at the foot of the cross, I can forgive anybody anything. I can forgive anybody anything. To the extent that you're unwilling to forgive those who sinned against you, to that extent, you don't understand the cross. to the extent that you're unwilling to forgive those who've sinned against you, you don't understand the cross. Now, I want you to know that I'm not talking about unilateral forgiveness. You know, where there's somebody does something wrong and there's absolutely no repentance, but you say, well, I extend forgiveness to you. I forgive you. They don't care. They've not repented. They've not acknowledged any wrongdoing or sin but I extend forgiveness to you and you feel yourself reconciled I'm not talking about that because that's not biblical listen Paul says in Colossians 3.13 forgive as Jesus forgives how does Jesus forgive well on the basis of on the condition of repentance listen to John Stott Stott writes He's talking about Luke 17, 3 and 4. If your brother sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. And Stott says, we are to rebuke a brother, and if if he sins against us, and we are to forgive him if he repents, and only if he repents. We must beware of cheapening forgiveness. Although God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of one another are quite different, since God is God and we are merely private individuals and sinners besides, Yet both are conditional upon repentance. If a brother who has sinned against us refuses to repent, we should not forgive him. Does that startle you? It is what Jesus taught. Oh, we must forgive in the sense that our thoughts toward him are free of all animosity and full of love. But this is not Christian forgiveness. Forgiveness means more than that. It includes restoration to fellowship. If we can restore to full and intimate fellowship with ourselves a sinning and unrepentant brother, we reveal not the depth of our love, but its shallowness. For we are are doing what is not for his highest good, a forgiveness which bypasses the need for repentance, issues not from love, but from sentimentality. This is at odds with a what a lot of Christians think today. But it's right. And it's important. Well, you know, there are those who have sinned against us. And until they repent, those relationships are fractured. Should they repent? If they did, we must forgive And until they repent, we must stand ready and eager to forgive. That's how we are to treat brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgive as the Lord forgives. This was assumed. Father, forgive them. It's assumed on the basis of repentance. It's assumed when they repent. It's assumed when they believe. And so, forgive as he forgives. Next. Sin. Almost done. Sin. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see there is a horrible depth to sin that we do not grasp. Now, they knew what they were doing, but they really didn't really know. There's a level of understanding, but the horrible depth of their sin, they didn't really know. We read in in Paul, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't understand the horror of it. And so often we don't understand the horror of our sin. Don't grasp the wicked depth of it. And so in response to this, when we hear the Lord say, forgive them for they know not what they do, pray that the Lord will give us an ever deepening understanding of the horror of our sin. That when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. God doesn't sit in glory impassive and unaffected by, by your sin. He's grieved. The word grieved, you know what it means? It means grieved. He's grieved. He's quenched. It may be that in a service like this, blessings are forfeited because of your sin. Blessings that could be poured upon the saints are forfeited because of your sin because you quench the work of the Spirit. We need to understand, we want to understand more the horror of our sin. So, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, help us to understand what we do when we sin. And then another word, sent. There are people around who need this message. They need to hear these words. They need to hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they hear. There were were sinners just feet away from where Jesus was who needed to hear this. And some of them did. And one of them in particular did. And he was in glory that day. Because he heard and he believed. And tomorrow there are going to be people who are feet away from you. just, Just a few scant feet away from you. They need to hear this. They need to hear, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they need to hear it in some way or other from you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. With a message of the forgiveness that the Father extends to those who believe in his Son. So we're sent. And lastly, we're saved. We're saved. I already said saved, but this is like saved completely at the end. Because there's tremendous, massive implications of being saved, of being forgiven. This, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's like saying, Father, save them. And when they're saved, they'll go to heaven. When they're forgiven of all their sin, they'll go to glory. So if you're saved today, you you believe this message, and you're forgiven of all your sins. What does it mean? Well, it means you're saved, and it means that one day... Oh, you'll be saved. It means that you can sing this. Bold shall I stand in thy great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay fully absolved from these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and and shame. That great day is the day of the Lord. It's the end, it's the last day. It's the day when you go either to heaven or hell and you will lift up your head on that day with joy because you're saved, because you're forgiven, because you're cleansed from all your sin. There's no charge against you anymore. You've been justified. And now you stand on that day and you lift up your head with joy and you look into the face of Christ and he welcomes you into the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for saving grace. We thank you for cleansing blood. We thank you for a finished work. And pray that he who accomplished this might be ever more precious to his people. For Jesus' sake, amen.